Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. By the turn of the 20th century, Hell's Kitchen in New York was notorious. The origins of the name were obscure, but by 1900, the neighbourhood on the west side of Manhattan, bordered by 34th Street to the south, 59th Street to the north, 8th Avenue to the east, and the Hudson River to the west, had become synonymous with urban crime and lawlessness. Having started as a largely African-American neighbourhood, Hell's Kitchen witnessed the arrival of large numbers of Irish and German emigrants in the 1850s, While the provenance of the moniker is murky, Hell's Kitchen got its tough reputation due to its close proximity to the Hudson River docks, where the first German and Irish immigrants found work, and some of whom eventually formed gangs in the 19th century. The writer Herbert Asprey referred to it as the most dangerous area on the American continent. Sensational as his style was, Asprey's description nevertheless gave voice to how many middle-class New Yorkers not only viewed the neighbourhood of Hell's Kitchen, but also the people who lived there. From stories they read in the press or accounts that filtered out into the posher parts of the city, Hell's Kitchen was considered the epitome of the worst aspects of New York life. The poor corrupted by urban living. The words of the contemporary African-American preacher, Reverend Butler, who visited Hell's Kitchen and preached in the neighbourhood in the summer of 1905, articulated what were the common perceptions. Crowded into this section are the wicked of many nations. I walked with a policeman around the block and he told me that 10,000 men and women lived in it. He said he'd been on the beat for four years and he did not know a single honest man or good woman on it. To bolster this view, when people from the neighbourhood appeared in the press, the accounts seemed to reinforce these stereotypes. One story from the New York Times in September 1910 fully captured the numerous stereotypes of Hell's Kitchen at the turn of the 20th century. On September the 24th that year, the Times reported on a street quarrel between two homeless men, Charles Brennan and Thomas Mooney. The disagreement turned physical when Brennan tried to leave. Mooney first struck Brennan, knocking him to the ground before producing a revolver. He then shot Charles Brennan through the head on the street in full public view. 
There were no police in the immediate vicinity. Two witnesses, Thomas Callaghan and Thomas Cooney, ran to a nearby pier overlooking the Hudson River, where they found a patrolman, an individual named Delaney, and Thomas Mooney was subsequently charged with murder. Everything about the story confirmed the worst stereotypes people had about Hell's Kitchen. The fact that the killer and his victim were homeless was unsurprising. The area was impoverished. Equally unsurprising was the fact that the police were not on hand. Hell's Kitchen was lawless at the best of times. It also underscored that the natives of Hell's Kitchen were predominantly Irish. The victim, his killer, the policeman and the two witnesses were, if their names were anything to go by, Irish or at least of Irish descent. There is no question that the stereotypes this story reinforced or the account of Reverend Butler were not above basis. The largely, although not exclusively, Irish working-class neighbourhood was poor, offering some of the worst housing in a New York that was heavily overcrowded. In 1890, the journalist and reformer Jacob Rees, himself an immigrant from Denmark, reflected in his groundbreaking book How the Other Half Live, an expose on life in the tenements, which included Rees's original photographs. Today, three-fourths of its people live in the tenements, and the 19th-century drift of the population to the cities is sending ever-increasing multitudes to crowd them. The 15,000 tenant houses that were the despair of the sanitarian in past generations have swelled into 37,000. Alongside this proliferate overcrowding, powerful criminal gangs, the Hell's Kitchen gang, the guerrillas, the parlour mob and the gophers exerted control and influence over life in Hell's Kitchen, carving out and controlling their respective fiefdoms block by block. However, alongside such stereotypes, many of the residents of this neighbourhood lived quiet lives and saw their community in very different terms. They weren't all criminals, as Reverend Butler implied. Most laboured long days in poorly paid and often dangerous jobs in the area's slaughterhouses, factories and lumberyards. They then returned to squalid, overcrowded, cold-water flats, homes with poor walls, poor ventilation, antiquated fireproofing, and inadequate building enforcement of existing fire codes and poor sanitation, often two or more multi-family flats shared a single toilet, plus communal privy in a rear yard with children playing amidst the open sewage. The middle classes, in turn, moralised and pitied them their hard lives. However, for many in Hell's Kitchen, far from being a sinkhole of vice, the neighbourhood and others like it across Lower Manhattan represented precisely the opposite. Hope and opportunity. In the middle of April 1905, two young Irish women from a remote valley in County Donegal arrived in Hell's Kitchen to start a new life. Given where they had come from and what they had already experienced in life, the occasional violence and overcrowded conditions were far outweighed by the opportunities on offer. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire. While many of you have been asking about the upcoming War of Independence series, that doesn't start until February the 1st. Over the coming weeks, however, this three-part series is a new departure for the podcast. The series tells the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. It's a joint project between myself and the author Hope C. Tarr, who lives in New York. The series has been in the making for nearly three years and over numerous online meetings, we developed three episodes that explore the emigrant experience in New York, not only from an Irish point of view, but also that of other communities they lived alongside in Manhattan, in this case, Eastern European Jews. It's centred around one of the most pivotal events in 20th century New York history, 
the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, an event with strong resonance on the psyche of New York today. While you'll hear narrations from Hope throughout the series, I just want to introduce her before we begin. Hope lives in Manhattan and holds a Master's in Psychology and a PhD in Education from the Catholic University of America. She's the award-winning author of 25 historical and contemporary romance novels, including Operation Cinderella, formerly optioned by Fox, and a founder and curator of the Manhattan Lady Jane Salon reading series from 2009 to 2020. Irish Eyes, currently on submission, is Hope's women's historical fiction set on the Iron Islands and Gilded Age Manhattan. Her screenplays for so far include Stolen Kiss, a female buddy heist feature with Emmy award-winning producer and director Linda Yellen, now in development. You can find out more at hopectar.com and follow her on Twitter at HopeTar, where she shares cool ephemera and fun historical snippets. There's links in the description below. Finally, before we begin, a word on the sources used in the podcast. The series follows the lives of some of the poor in early 20th century New York, people who lived on the margins. One of the individuals featured in the series is Annie Doherty, who was born in Donegal in 1886. She emigrated to the USA in 1905 and lived there until at least 1920. Her age and life experience indicates she was the same Irish woman who appears in New York records in 1911 and plays a pivotal role in the following events. As you will hear, it is not possible to say with complete certainty the two women are the same individual, but at the very least, their combined life experience is certainly one common to Irish people in New York, which shaped the following events. The second individual is Celia Walker, for whom we have a complete unbroken historical record, from her emigration as a young child to her death. Sound in the series is by Jason Looney. Additional narrations by Aidan Crow. In April 1905, Annie and Mary Doherty stepped off the steamship, the Columbia, arriving in the United States after a month-long sea voyage. It's difficult to appreciate how disorientating the smells, the sounds and the sights of early 20th century New York were for two sisters who had probably never left their native Donegal before emigrating. To Annie and Mary, New York was a strange and alien place. The trafficked streets clogged with pedestrians, carriages and even the occasional motor car, the buildings tall and densely stacked, the overhead railway bridges for the elevated railway commuter trains blocking all but the sparest glimpses of sun and sky. The city's population was almost equal to the population of the entire island of Ireland at the time. In their early days, the Doherty's presumably battled with moments of regret, even fear, that they had made the wrong decision. The loneliness and absence of familiar surroundings certainly enhanced a yearning for family and home. Leaving home hadn't been easy. Their final farewell to their family, friends and neighbours back in Beogmore in the Finn Valley in County Donegal had been one tinged with a deathly finality. There was a strong possibility they would never return or see their parents again. Their father Patrick, over ten years older than their mother Mary, was already well into his fifties. In an Ireland where life expectancy was around fifty-five, this almost guaranteed when Annie and Mary had left, their parting with him was a final one. Realistically, even though their mother was younger, the realities of an emigrant's life in the US made a return home at any point difficult. There was no question emigrating offered great opportunities that simply did not exist at home. Wages alone were several times higher, but such opportunities also brought great responsibility and financial burdens on the sisters. Once they started to earn money, they would be expected to send anything they could back home to their parents. 
remittances from children in America were an important part of the household economy in communities in the west of Ireland. As their siblings grew up, further demands might be placed on them. While their older brother John would eventually inherit the family farm, Annie and Mary might be expected to help their three younger siblings, Ellen, Bridget and Joseph, emigrate to the US as well. Depending on the circumstances, they might also be expected to help cover the fears of cousins and even neighbours. These demands could absorb any extra incomes they had in the coming years. There would be little money or time to even think of returning home. Once the two women, aged 20 and 18 in 1905, married and started their own families, any remaining dreams of visiting Donegal would likely be ended, permanently. Indeed, the farewell afforded to emigrants from the west of Ireland, an American wake, embraced this notion. As the name suggests, the farewell party contained funeral rituals. One account of an American wake recorded in the 1930s recalled, When a person was going to America, a dance was held in that person's house the night before he went. All the neighbours were invited. Towards morning, a few old women usually started lamenting and wailing. This dance was called an American wake. In Annie and Mary's case, this send-off would have been an intimate and emotional affair. They had grown up as one of just seven families in the village of Beogmore. Alongside two other families of Doherty's, there was the McKelvies, whose grandfather John was one of the oldest men in the village. The two remaining families were the Brennans and the Gallaghers. In many ways, these people in Beogmore were an extended family. The children played together in many cases, the families had little choice but to support each other in the face of the very difficult conditions in the uplands of Donegal. To say goodbye was difficult. While the emotional nature of this farewell distracted the emigrants from the journey ahead and the difficulties in starting a new life in a strange land, Irish emigrants like Annie Doherty were well aware of what lay ahead of them. Thousands of letters from other emigrants and the occasional person who did make the return journey gave them some sense of what awaited them as newcomers to the US. There was no question that the decision to leave revealed courage in the two sisters. Lawrence Ginnell, an Irish Member of Parliament at the time, acknowledged it was only the bravest who emigrated. While the physically and mentally healthy and energetic emigrate, the physically and mentally inefficient and dependent stay home. Some for want of courage, and some because they would not be admitted into a new country. Ginnell's remarks reveal an odd or certainly ambivalent attitude towards people like himself, the people who remained in Ireland, but they are nonetheless insightful. While bravery may have been a necessity for Annie Doherty, life at home offered her nothing other than what seemed like an endless cycle of poverty. No matter how bad Hell's Kitchen was, it was in its own way better than the Finn Valley in rural Donegal. The Doherty sisters' home village, Bjogmore, was situated in stunning surroundings. The Finn Valley is nestled between the Derry Vey Mountains to the north and the Blue Stack Mountains to the south. James Fraser, a Scottish writer who had visited the region in the early 1840s when writing a handbook for tourists, described the road through the valley thusly. The mountains attain a greater elevation. The glens are deeper and more defined. There is, however, much less cultivation and there is much more wildness and much more beauty. Stunning as the scenery was, as Fraser hinted, Bjogmore offered little to the community in terms of eking out a living there. The land was poor and most of the inhabitants struggled to survive. The Doherty sisters had grown up in a cramped, overcrowded house. Their parents Patrick and Mary had raised their family of six children in a two-roomed cottage. 
Annie Doherty, the Order of the Sisters, was born in 1886 when Donegal stood at a crossroads looking towards a new century but anchored in the past. There were a few places in Ireland unaffected by the legacy of the Great Famine of the 1840s but the impact of the catastrophe had fallen particularly hard on Donegal. The population of the county had declined from around 300,000 people to 250,000 people in five years between 1846 and 1851. The shadow this traumatic event cast over life in the following decades, while often left unspoken, shaped the early years of Annie's childhood. Emigration, primarily to the United States, continued at a staggering level. In some decades it exceeded 10%. In spite of a very high birth rate, the population of the county had fallen to 170,000 by 1901. While there were the occasional large-scale evictions where landlords for one reason or another would force all his tenants off the land, the reason most left was the poverty that remained endemic to life long after the famine. The 1841 census categorised 64% of the entire county of Donegal as wasteland, yet families like the Doherty's were left with little choice other than to survive on the margins, an existence that left them perilously close to subsistence. Communities like theirs lived from year to year and harvest to harvest, facing hunger if the potato crop failed. Annie's childhood was marked by particularly bad years in Donegal. Poor weather in the early 1890s had triggered a localised famine. In the summer of 1891, the MP for South Donegal, John Gordon Swift MacNeil told the House of Commons that 21,000 people were suffering from what he called deep distress. In a moving speech, he described how disease was rampant in the northwest of the county. He went on to claim the barometer of famine, excess mortality, was running at 150% of normal years. While 1891 was a particularly bad year in North Donegal, families like Annie Doherty's and their neighbours could be plunged into desperation at the best of times by a freak weather incident. In May 1894, the Finn Valley was hit by an unseasonally late but severe frost. Warm weather earlier in the year had led farmers to plant their potatoes optimistically early. Initially, the crop thrived. However, that only compounded the crisis when a severe cold snap in May swept the valley, destroying the blooming plants. A visitor to the region described field upon field of blackened potatoes a full year's crop reduced to rot. The winter of 1894-5, to as Annie approached her ninth birthday, would have been particularly punishing. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. 
BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. If Annie remained in Donegal, this endless struggle for survival was what she could expect from life. Even finding somewhere to live would be hard. Her older brother John would in time marry and his wife would take over the running of their family home. Annie and her remaining siblings would be expected to leave in the following years. Marriage was a possibility. However, finding a husband locally represented yet another challenge. In each family, farms usually passed to the firstborn son, still living at home, meaning Annie could struggle to find a husband who would come into possession of land, essential to survival. Daunting though emigration was, in cases such as Annie and Mary's, it was often the best alternative. In many ways, Annie had been preparing for this transatlantic journey the whole of her life. From her birth, her parents were aware that at least some of their children would have to emigrate to make their own way and had to prepare them as best they could, notably by ensuring they spoke fluent English. At the height of the Great Famine of the 1840s, many Irish emigrants, particularly those from the west of Ireland, spoke exclusively Irish. Once they arrived in America, they had to limit their employment prospects to others in the Irish community. However, by the 1890s, while one third of the population of County Donegal were still exclusively Irish speakers, the younger generation were encouraged to learn English. By 1901, only one adult in Annie's home village of Bjogmore was unable to speak English. Annie's parents, Patrick and Mary, were keen and proud Irish speakers. They were the only ones in Bjogmore to fill out the 1911 census in Irish, itself a political statement. However, they and their children could speak English, an essential skill for Annie and her sister Mary when they arrived in New York. Annie and her generation were also prepared for emigration through better education than their famine ancestors. According to the 1901 census, both sisters could read and write, by then common in Bjogmore. Only one third of the community, 13 of the 35 people, could not read and they tended to be either the very young or those over 40. While fluency in English and their improved education gave the Doherty sisters advantages over other emigrants, Annie had yet another skill at her disposal. She had already learned a trade, one that she could utilise when she reached New York. The plight of the people of Donegal had gained attention across Ireland and Britain in the 1880s and 1890s. This public attention had led to several philanthropic efforts to help the poor of the county, although few had had the impact that Alice Hart's initiative did. After visiting Donegal with her husband, Ernest, and the Quaker philanthropist, James Hack Chook, Alice was profoundly moved by the poverty she had seen there. Determined to improve the lives of the people, she drew inspiration from the arts and crafts movement then popular in England. This movement encouraged cottage industries in a time when industrialisation had made them almost completely obsolete. 
Once Hart became aware that Donegal, along with many western counties, had a long history of lace making, she set about reviving this industry by establishing lace schools in the county. Alice Hart herself focused on securing national and international markets for the lace industry, including in the United States. In the US, Irish lace had become a coveted marker of social class, including among the resident Irish. The Irish community in the US was not nearly as homogenous as is often portrayed, but instead riven by class differences. As the children and grandchildren of the famine emigrants slowly moved up the social ladder, playing increasingly prominent parts in municipal and state politics, firefighting, policing and various industries, many wanted to distance themselves from their newly arrived cousins. Known as the Lace Curtain Irish, their ability to purchase lace dresses, curtains and other lace household items indicated they were different to the poor, newly arrived Irish, often referred to as greenhorns. Ironically, this class snobbery helped drive the demand for the lace, the making of which created employment for many new and potential emigrants. So successful was Alice Hart's initiative that it almost single-handedly revived the lace industry in Donegal. The economic impact for the weavers, almost universally women and girls, extended beyond that of any cottage industry. Many, having perfected their craft to a high standard, were able to find work as seamstresses in local factories or in Derry City. Annie Doherty appears to have been one such person. Where exactly Annie learned her craft is unclear, but we do know that she was one of the beneficiaries of Alice Hart's revival of the industry. By the time she left Ireland, she was a trained seamstress, something that would have been invaluable in New York, which had a major clothing industry. But while her parents had prepared Annie and Mary as much as was possible for a life in the United States, their planning had its limitations. Adapting would still be difficult. One of the Doherty sisters' earliest homes in New York was a tenement at 331 West 50th Street in Hell's Kitchen. While they were used to cramped conditions of a kind, life on West 50th Street was very different. They shared this building with 19 other people, most of them strangers. Back in Beogmore, they could escape the cramped cottage for the vast open country of the valley and the surrounding hills. New York offered no such easy respite. Here the streets were always crowded, the barrage of sirens, horns and hucksters enduring into the waning hours. Central Park, the large public park that dominates the Upper West and Upper East sides of Manhattan, was entering a period of decline and wasn't always safe. Amusements accessible to working people, such as the dime museums and the vaudeville theatres of the Bowery, the boxing matches at Madison Square Garden and the amusement parks of Coney Island required money and leisure time, commodities that new arrivals such as Annie and her sister would have in scarce supply. Perhaps the greatest contrast was the heterogeneity of the New York community Annie had come to. In Beogmore, the seven families who lived in the Doherty's hamlet shared a very similar understanding and lived experience of the world. Their families may have lived side by side for generations. They all farmed rented plots of land, they all spoke Irish on a daily basis, and they were all Roman Catholics. In New York, however, Annie and Mary belonged to numerous overlapping communities. The house they lived in on West 50th Street was managed by a German widow, Gertrude Reich, who had arrived in the US in 1895. The rest of the people lodging there had come from Ireland or various parts of the US. In terms of their religious community, this too was varied. Some of their neighbours, but not necessarily all, would have joined the sisters when they attended Mass, almost certainly at Holy Cross, 
church at West 42nd Street between 8th and 9th Avenues, a Hell's Kitchen parish with a proud tradition of ministering to the area's poor and indigent, as well as to actors, prostitutes and others. However, it was in their work where the Doherty sisters experienced the more diverse nature of life in New York. Annie Doherty, as is so often the case with poor immigrants, disappears from the records after her arrival. She and her sister briefly reappear in the US census of 1910, where Annie described herself under the generic title of dressmaker. She again disappears until an Irish woman of the same name working as a seamstress appears in records as working in the garment industry in New York. Although Annie could not appreciate it at the time, her workplace would go down in history as one of the most notorious sweatshops in not only New York City, but in all of -of turn-of-the-century America, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in Manhattan. Here, her life would become intertwined with families from southern Italy and Jewish families from Eastern Europe, including one woman, Celia Walker. While their life experiences were very different, Annie and Celia did share one thing in common, the experience of getting to the US. As Celia's experience illustrates, this transatlantic journey was a far cry from the romanticised accounts of books and movies. Celia Walker, like Annie, was an emigrant. However, her experience of life had been radically different. Celia was born in Premysl, in southwestern Poland, which was, in the late 19th century, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The family's original surname was likely something akin to Woolwitz or Walczuk, almost certainly altered to Walker at the shipping company office before departing Holland, as Walker is the name recorded on the ship's manifest when they left Europe in 1898. Celia's father, Abraham, had emigrated first, leaving Premysl two years earlier before his family around 1895. This decision to separate the family, while not an easy one, was typical. Many emigrants felt compelled to make hard sacrifices for the long-term benefit of their and their family's future. Once established on Stanton Street in the lower east side of New York City, Abraham, much like Irish emigrants, was the first link in chain migration. He worked hard and undoubtedly went without in order to save the $40 steerage passage needed to bring over his family, his wife Anna, 33, and their four children, Rosa, 11, Celia, Ursula, seven, Jacob, nine, and Israel, two. The $40 sum didn't factor in the cost of getting to the port of Rotterdam, an overland journey of nearly 1,500 kilometres. Whether it was in the port of Derry, in the case of the Doherty sisters, or Rotterdam, in the case of the Walkers, the experience of emigration was often an ordeal that could be both harrowing and at times degrading. Emigrants underwent a health inspection and interview at their port of departure before being cleared to purchase their transatlantic ticket. Ship clerks prepared information sheets on each passenger that would be cross-checked at Ellis Island upon arrival. Some of the questions were straightforward. Others, such as whether or not the passenger had ever been in prison, a poorhouse or suffered what was called crippling deformities, were deeply charged as well as telling of the low regard in which poor passengers were held. This system, designed to ensure emigrants who reached the US would be healthy and productive Americans in the making, was rigorously followed. The steamship companies had little choice but to follow these protocols. As part of the transfer of emigration handling in New York Harbour from state to federal hands from 1892 onwards, the onus fell on the steamship companies to conduct the initial thorough screening of passengers. For any passenger rejected at the emigrant receiving station in New York, for health or other reasons, the shipping company was required to absorb the cost of his or her return passage, as well as pay a hefty fine. 
once boarded the journey for third-class or steerage passengers, so named because they were quartered in the lowest levels of the ship near the steering mechanisms, was often difficult. The novelist Robert Louis Stevenson romanticised the camaraderie as what he called the small iron country of the deep when referring to the ship. However, the reality was very different. Whatever enthusiasm Celia or Annie had about emigrating would have been immediately dampened by the dank and crowded living conditions below the waterline. While cabin-class passengers on steamers were served fine foods, liqueurs and wines and provided lavish entertainments, those in steerage had a quite a different experience. Separated by sex and assigned to dormitory-style quarters stacked with metal-framed bunks, they were provided little in the way of creature comforts. A bucket to relieve oneself, three simple meals a day, the opportunity to stretch one's legs on the steerage deck, removed from the sight of the better-offs. This tiered experience continued on arrival in New York, where first and second class passengers were afforded the dignity of private inspection by immigration officials in the comfort of their cabins, then taken to shore and let off to go about their business. For steerage passengers such as the Walkers and later the Doherty sisters, the ordeal of being processed was just beginning. As steerage passengers, they would have had to wait for the cabin passengers to disembark and be shuttled to shore before being taken there themselves. While Annie passed through Ellis Island, Celia had a somewhat modified experience passing through the temporary emigrant receiving station set up in the barge office adjacent to Castle Garden in the Battery. Ellis Island had been ravaged by fire in 1897. The handsome brickwork buildings we associate with the iconic emigrant receiving station were under construction and wouldn't reopen until 1900. However, the basics of the process were much the same. First was the medical inspection. Doctors in white lab coats, stethoscopes ringing around their necks and holding clipboards and chalk stubs, observed the emigrants as they shuffled forward, making note of such things as shortness of breath or unusual gait, anything that might indicate illness. The most universally dreaded part of the physical exam was a trachoma test, a highly contagious illness of the eye that trachoma could lead to blindness if left untreated. Emigrants standing perfectly still had each of their eyelids rolled back with a slender buttonhook medical instrument and examined. To the Walker children in particular, aged 2 through to 11, this ordeal must have been terrifying. Other conditions the doctors would have been on the lookout for and chalked accordingly on the unlucky emigrants' coat front included B for back problems, C for conjunctivitis, G for goiter, H for heart problems, X for what was then called mental retardation and PG for pregnancy. The consequences were stark. Emigrants found to be failing would be taken to the on-site infirmary, quarantined at the hospital on Blackwell's Island or remanded to the ship to be transported back to the port of origins. Fortunately, like the Doherty sisters, the Walker family passed the medical exam. Next, they would have proceeded to the registry office where uniformed clerks stood behind lectern-like desks. There, all emigrants were asked 29 questions, which they had already been asked in the port of departure. These were focused on the person's character and past. If the answers did not match those previously given, they could be refused entry. Once passed and allowed into the country, the experience of emigrants in New York was heavily shaped by their country of origin and religious grouping. While Annie and her sister settled in Hell's Kitchen, a predominantly Irish Catholic neighbourhood, Celia's family settled in a tenement building at 292 Stanton Street between Allen and Orchard Streets in the Lower East Side, a neighbourhood of predominantly Eastern European Jews. The relationship between these communities, the Irish and the Jewish, was complex and at times contentious, at other times cooperative. 
Racial tensions flared from time to time, given the anti-Semitism common among Irish emigrants. The American Jewish socialist Benjamin Feinbaum went as far as to say in 1917, When a Jew thought about anti-Semitic troubles in America, the Irishman immediately appeared in his mind. Another old Jewish socialist who, because of his politics, sympathised with oppressed peoples, wrote that Among them, the Irish took an important place. However, his direct experience of Irish people was one of hostility. He said, From my first acquaintance with the Irish in this country, I have come across singular hostility. On each step I have felt that they, the Irish, hate us, that they cannot stand us. However, this bigotry blurred in the face of shared goals and aligned interests, not least in the sphere of politics. By the late 19th century, Tammany Hall, the Irish political machine that ran democratic politics in New York City, was adjusting to meet the changing demographics in the city, most notably the influx of non-Irish emigrants. By the 1870s, a majority of new emigrants came from Eastern Europe and Southern Italy, not Ireland, and Tammany bosses looked to these votes to maintain their power. Tammany's chief boss, Charlie Murphy, and his successors recognised that the continued vitality, indeed survival, of what they called their grand old machine depended on broadening its membership beyond the traditional Irish base. However, for Annie Doherty and Celia Walker, the point of interaction wasn't in the political meeting hall, but on a shop floor. By 1911, the two women were working in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory as he was about to take centre stage in US politics, galvanising workplace reform for decades to come. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 